are reading the Beatitudes again today, which you find in Matthew 5, verses 2 through 13. And I will begin. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And then today's verse, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Al. Well, real quick before we jump into uh, our text today and our message today. You step away for one week, you forget a lot of things. I forgot to do announcements. Let's do that right now. <laughs> a couple of things we wanted to bring to your attention this morning before we head into our sermon. Um, two of them, actually. First one was our back-to-school supply drive. We mentioned that to you um, last week, I think, for the first time. We have a unique opportunity this year as families are scrambling, trying to figure out what they're doing for school, whether you know, they're doing homeschool or, or through the uh, online through the school district, uh, all kinds of kind of chaos surrounding school. But we can sort of set some, give some peace to some of these families by providing a, a kit that... Um, is being put together, uh, I think through the Canby Center, where you can um, give to the, uh, a certain amount and donate, and these kids will be provided with what they need for the school year. If you've seen your worship folder there, $12 donates supplies for a K through 6th grade kit, and $32 for a 7th through 12th uh, grade kit. So if you're interested in doing that, you can do it, make a donation online through our Alexio Online Giving. We have a, a, a tab there for giving, but also you can make a checkout and put a uh, back to school in the memo and you can turn in today when you leave or bring it by the church office. We'd love to just help out as many families as we can in our Canby community. It's a way to love our community. And then finally, our life groups will be starting up. I'm thinking probably late September we'll get them going again, but we are in need. I would love to see us add a few more groups. So that means we're in need of a few more life group shepherds. If you are interested or have co-led before or have some experience or even just want to find out what it's all about, uh, I'd encourage you to reach out to me. Uh, talk to me today, email the church office, call the church office, some way get in touch with me or just email me at jeff at canbybethany.org um, so we can start a dialogue and a discussion and even do some training for you to get you ready for that uh, for fall when we start those back up. Well, today we've got a fantastic, great, but very challenging beatitude. Remember, we've been working our way through the beatitudes this summer, not as a to-do list, perform these things and you will enter the kingdom. No, we've been looking at them as the tagline of our series says, an operation of grace. 
an operation of God working on our hearts. These are not natural qualities. Remember, we've talked about this. But only the, those gospel ambitions that can come about by a work of God's spirit in the human heart. These are qualities of those who are actually already in the kingdom, not the way in. And they define this other world, upside down kingdom happiness. Looks like this. Blessed are those who are hungry for righteousness. Not blessed are those who have lots of toys and money and are stuffed full of good things. No. It's other world, other kingdom kind of goodness. And the order of the Beatitudes are really important too. I don't think we've talked about this yet, but they are. We're in the second half now of the Beatitudes. But, but take a look at them real quick if you've got your text open to Matthew 5. For just a quick recap. The first four Beatitudes describe really kind of uh, the, the way somebody has gone through what somebody has gone through to become a Christian. They show us our great need, the first four. First, you need to be poor in spirit, which means I have some big problems. You realize that, you acknowledge that, and I need help. Which turns you to a great mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. Seeing my problems as internal sin problems. I realize that my greatest problem is me. I may look good on the outside, but I know deep down inside I desire to be the captain of my ship. I want Jesus to keep his, his, his grubby little hands off of me. I want to I control my life. But thirdly then, in meekness and humility, we turn to God and give up control of our life and surrender to God. But as we surrender, we realize to have God, we need the one thing we can't produce, righteousness. I need someone else's record. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That fourth beatitude. And that's the centerpiece of the beatitudes right there. That one we did a couple weeks ago. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's the turning point, really. And so we receive Christ's righteousness rather than achieve it. Do you remember that? It's a righteousness that's received, not achieved. It was the second side of that gospel coin we talked about. On the one side, Christ pays for my sins at the cross as they're imputed, credited, given to him. And through repentance and faith, the other side of the coin is that he gives me his righteousness. Now we get to the second four Beatitudes to tell you, now once you come to have his righteousness, what life is like now as a Christian, the second four. Now that you're in Christ, when you come to see that you're saved by grace alone, deserve nothing less than God's hand of judgment upon you, and you received mercy. It takes you off your pedestal and Beatitude 5, you become merciful. Blessed are those who are merciful, as David preached last week. You see the logical order working out here now that we come, as we're getting in deeper into the second half that describe this new life in Christ. And today it's verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In our world, it's the mantra of, or, or the message of every Disney movie. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. That's the message and the mantra that guides our, the masses, our, our, our people, our culture, our world. In God's kingdom, it's those whose heart follows him that will finally find what they were looking for all along in life. This morning we uncover the pure heart that will see God. 
see him. This pure heart is truly something that only a Christian can know. We will find out. When you come under new leadership, a new kingdom, a new, new boss maybe, let's say, new leadership, things can change hopefully for the better. Fresh eyes come in, things can be cleaned up or, or done more efficiently and, and the business thrives or, or the sports team under a new coach begins to flourish and thrive in a way that they never did as they play together under this new leadership. Well, to come into the kingdom of God is to come to the best king and see transformation happen inside of you that you never thought possible. That's what we're getting at today. So hopefully you've got your outline there. We've got one there for you. Just a few points today. And if your text open to Matthew 5, we're going to keep looking at it. We'll jump to some other places as well today. Book of Ezekiel. So if you want to tab it, we're going to go there later. Let's unpack these words as we've been doing each week. They're short little pithy verses, but inside each of these words is a, just a, a world of meaning. So let's do that today. Let's start with the heart. Here's our first thing word we're going to unpack, the heart. The biblical heart, number one, is the center of a person. It's the seat of the emotions, intellect, and will. The heart is the center. It's the seat of your emotions, your intellect, and will. We've got to start here looking at what the heart is. Because this is what the verse says God wants to be pure, doesn't he? He wants you to be pure in, he doesn't say body, he doesn't even say mind. But he says heart, pure in heart. Christianity is first and foremost, the Bible itself is first and foremost concerned with your heart. With this little word, the heart. And from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the heart is talked about all the time, almost, I think, 900 times in the Bible. So let's unpack this. What is our heart? One of the things that's most interesting and fascinating about childhood, and some of you kids know this just by experience because you're still kids, one of the things about childhood is that kids have a hard time hiding what's going on in their hearts, don't they? They don't have a lot of filters like we do as adults. If you're angry, if they're angry, you know, they, you know it, right? If they're joyful, whether they're bouncing off the walls and giggling, you know it. If they're sad, tears come easy to children, don't they? Their heart is, you might say, on their sleeve is the, the phrase. And part of the process of becoming an adult, what do we do? We learn to put filters in place, don't we? Learn to put maybe sometimes even a, a, just a happy face on when things aren't so happy. Another, put another way, we learn to be, how to be nice people. Maybe sometimes even hide what's going on in our heart, in our inner self. Maybe for example, we've all done this. Think about your worst experience ever with customer service. <laughs> ever. That you ever had. God bless them, right? They serve at a really <laughs> needed but hard kind of uh, uh, field, uh, career. You just want your refund back that broken coffee maker you got, it's not working right. And you go and you, you go to this customer service person, does, they don't know you, they don't know your issue, they don't know how frustrated you are with this machine that you just want to work and you ask them and they, they start just typing on their keyboards, frantically typing, like ignoring you like they have to finish some term paper or something. You're like, can I return it or not? Can I return it? You just want your refund. It's taking forever and they come back and say, you know, I'm sorry, the computer won't let me do it, right? The computer won't let me do it. I just can't do it. 
All of a sudden, what happens? This crack smile comes in your face. You're like, okay, thank you. <laughs> All the while inside, what, what's going on? You're kind of raging. You, you have some really choice words you'd love to say, but you've learned how to be nice. You've learned how to not show what's actually going on inside your heart. Sometimes, though, we let it slip out, don't we? Sometimes in our, in our, in our most feverish moments, maybe a frustration or anger or sadness, we let slip out what's really going on in our heart. But most of the time, we're good as adults at filtering. We mask it. But actually, the def definition of hypocrisy, to put a mask on like those actors used to do sad and happy face. That's what that word means, actually. We're nice people. When we hear heart in English, the problem is this. When we hear it, we think of just emotions. I, I love her with my whole what? Heart. And it's not less than that. The heart is the seed of the emotions, but it's so much more than that. Your heart. The heart is the center of who you are. It's your causal core, you might say. The seat and the driver, not only of your emotions, but of your intellect and your will and your desires. It's the fountain of your life. If you want to put it really simply, what the heart is. And out of that fountain flows your actions, your thoughts, your feelings, your desires. It's the center of your person, your being. We've all got one. Not just the muscle that pumps blood, but this part of us that drives us, gives you your motives. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning, your heart. And here's why it's so important. Because each and every one of us know you can change outwardly without an inward changed heart. You can use filters, you can suppress it many times when you just want to let it out. You can look really changed on the outside and have an inward heart that hasn't been touched. In fact, that's maybe even hardening over time in life. You could change your actions even for wrong motives, to look nice, to get honor, to get peace, to get recognition, to get your way all while harboring horrible thoughts and attitudes and desires. Just give me my refund, you jerk, right? <laughs> and that's what Jesus gets at when he says to the Pharisees this. You know, remember these words. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. What Jesus is saying there is that it's really possible to look really nice on the outside, really good on the outside, and yet have a heart that is rotten, impure, and far from God, or a heart that even hates God and is against God. You know, the Pharisees were really nice guys. They looked really good. And yet God calls them into question and says their heart, hearts are like rotting bones. And nice guys even, sometimes they're in the most dangerous place because they're deceived by their niceness. The Pharisees were always shocked, weren't they? What? Us? Me? Our way of life? They're always shocked because they're deceived by niceness. And a lot of nice people don't have pure hearts. The hearts that Jesus is talking about here. Nice people serve God as long as he gives them what 
they want. And if he doesn't, they either end up mad at God when he doesn't keep up his end, or absolutely self-loathing when they realize they haven't lived up to their standards and they haven't kept their end. It's a horrible trap to be caught in. When they fail to live up their standards, where then their true heart seeps through. They're destroyed because the facade of niceness is cracked in that moment. Remember what Jesus said, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So here's what happens then. When the trials of life shake you up, where the heat of life starts beating down on you like the sun is right now, what do we do? We see things come out of us we don't like. We blame the circumstances. We blame him or her or the fact that they won't give me my refund. But here's what Jesus is saying. If it came out of you, it's already inside of you. If something spills out of your mouth or uh, you, the facade and the, the, what you're holding together and there's a crack all of a sudden and it, what really is inside seeps out, it came out of you because it was already inside of you is what Jesus was saying. And that's why the heart is so important because the true you is what's really going on inside there even if you've become really good at looking nice. It's about the heart because redemption is about so much more than just moral reformation, just being nice. I want to quote C.S. Lewis a couple times today. I found a couple things this week that go well with our message in this uh, beatitude. He was talking about the fact of, that Christianity is so much more than being just nice. Here's what he said. For mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people in the here and now and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine, he went on, God became man to turn creatures into sons and daughters, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of men. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Don't you love his imagination? That's what redemption is about not just, just pulling up your bootstraps and trying a little harder. He wants to turn a horse into a winged creature. Something entirely new. New men and women. Which means the heart has to be involved. The kingdom of God is not about w working really hard to be a good person. It's actually what the Beatitudes say about realizing you're not a good person. And having God transform you from the center, from the core, from the heart outward. It's not just like to give an example that some of us will get. It's not like just taking a, an old engine and putting premium gasoline in it. it. No, it's like ripping out the old V4, uh, V4 engine, and putting in 1,600 horsepower Hennessy twin turbo V8 engine. I have no idea what that is, but I think it's really powerful. <laughs> it's like doing that. It's like taking the entire engine out. The car body may take some time to change or look the same, but what's underneath the hood? It's a total transformation is what Jesus is saying. The heart from the inside out, like replacing an old engine with a, a brand new one that outperforms. You and I need a total under-the-hood renovation, not just some gallons of, of, of super gasoline, super premium, super premium niceness, you know? Maybe you've been following the story, you can't help but see uh, it pop up time to time. Um, Lori Laughlin, the Full House actress. A lot of you grew up watching that show in the 90s. TGIF, you know, Friday, Full House. 
She was the epitome of niceness on the show and is has been in her public reputation. Was arrested, I think, last year for this college payment scandal. Have you heard of it? You've seen it going on? Yeah. Uh, and, and she was arrested recently and even charged, or uh, her, her sentence was given out recently, uh, I think a couple months in jail or something. And she just was quoted this week of saying about her arrest and her sorrow for what she did. Listen to her words. She said, I, I have great faith in God. I believe in redemption. And I will do everything in my power to redeem myself and use this experience as a catalyst to do good. Now, I don't know Lori Laughlin's heart, and this is just one quote, but if this, is, if this is, summarizes her, her entire philosophy and worldview and her heart and her life and what it means to be a person who has faith in God, that's the language of a nice person trying to be nice. Redeem myself. Use this as an opportunity just to try harder to do good. A catalyst to do good was her quoted words. I promise. I, 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 I'll try harder. I'll be better. Just, just, just watch. Just wait. I'll redeem myself. Well, if the heart is the center of who you are and the driving force of your emotions, intellect, and will, then what does it mean to have a pure heart? It can't just mean be a nicer person. It's got to mean more than that. So what does it mean? You might hear the purity of heart and think, that's really vague. It is, kind of. Or it sounds impossible and feel totally discouraged when you hear purity of heart. Is that just mean I have to be morally perfect to see God? And somehow I've got to jimmy rig and, and, and pry my heart and just shape it and mold it to be perfect? Purity of heart doesn't actually mean morally perfect. Yes, we need holiness to see God, and we will have it. But it means something a little different than that. Let's take a look at number two. A pure heart is not the product of a sinless heart necessarily, it, but it's the process of a transformed heart that's solely dedicated to destroying idols and pursuing God. So it's not this product that if I can just get this product, I'll be good but more of a process of a transformed, changed heart. Remember, rip out the engine? That's dedicated, and here's the important point, to destroying idols in the heart and pursuing God. If you think of the, fear, the, the pure heart as this final product, you have to reach a sinless heart. You've got it wrong here. Yes, God requires moral perfection. We have that in Christ. We pursue it our entire life, and God will someday make us perfectly holy. But living in the here and now with a pure heart, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, really means it's an honest heart, a heart that is undivided, singly devoted in a process of transformation, of finding its own idols and destroying them, getting rid of them, all the while pursuing God. That's a pure heart. Let me show you. Psalm 24 3 and 4 say this. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? You kind of get that, going to see him, a vision of him. Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust an idol or swear by a false god. There it is, a pure heart. Doesn't follow idols. Doesn't follow false gods. A pure heart is undivided. It's been wrung out. It's been ironed. It's been pressed like a wrinkled shirt to get all the folds out, the impurities, the creases. 
It's been purified and cleansed and distilled by honestly acknowledging that the big wrinkles are there. The idols. And exchanging them. The classic text for this is Ezekiel 36. Turn there with me. I want you to turn there actually today. I want you to see these verses. We just sang the Old Testament songs. So you should probably have a good, somewhat idea where it is. Was it Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. There it is, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36. Turn there with me and look at verse 25. It's the classic Old Testament passage on the heart and what it means to have a pure heart. Lord says there through Ezekiel to Ezekiel, I will, chapter 36, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you, purity, from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of, you know what it says, stone and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit, press him, push him, put him into you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Let me ask you a question. Even as a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, do you think you need to be cleansed from idols? You might think, well, I, I don't have a shrine to something or little wooden statues we might think of when we think of idols, a, a statue on my nightstand. You could be somebody even here today who's agnostic or atheist and say, well, I don't even believe in God. How could I have an idol? Remember, an idol is a matter of the heart. And from the perspective of the Bible, anything you're living for as a primary thing other than God is an idol. The Puritan David Clarkson said it like this, when the mind and heart is set upon anything more than God, when anything is more invalued, more intended, anything more trusted, more loved, or our endeavors more for any other thing than God. Or to make it practical, here's a really practical way to say it. An idol is when we take a good thing, a good thing, and make it a God thing. That's a really simple way to understand and try to think through what this is getting at. An idol is taking a good thing and making it a God thing. It's a counterfeit God, to use the title of a book. It's something that you pursue and have and need to feel secure, safe, meaningful, powerful. What is it for you? It's something or a number of things. You've got to have it. And idols control us. We will shape our life. We'll do crazy things for them. Think of somebody addicted to drugs. And that's, that's a form of idolatry in some ways. It's a sickness, yes. It's, there's biological things. There's all kinds of things that go with that. But when it's controlling their life, they will go through brick walls to get it. And they don't care who's in their way. We all have things like that. Is the idol of good children. If so, for you... You'll destroy your children with that because the pressure you put on them to be, you're everything. And what would your nightmare be when your child fails? Is it love for you? My life will only have meaning if I have this kind of love or this person loves me. Your nightmare is rejection. Is it leisure and comfort or retirement maybe for you? Your life has meaning based upon how many hours are kept for you, me time, my time. Your nightmare would be in being inconvenienced by relationships. We each have different idols, all of us. And when our idols are threatened, what happens? 
Here's what Jesus said in Luke 6.45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For that, the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Some, that's when our heart seeps through. That's when the true self kind of worms its way and wiggles through the cracks is when one of our idols is threatened. We defend the idol. So when you get angry, ask yourself this question. What am I defending right now that's so important to me? The answer to that may be an idol. Or maybe when you find yourself just totally paralyzed with fear and anxiety. Ask yourself, what am I so afraid of losing right now? The answer to that may be one of your idols. Our problem is we live, even as Christians, with a divided heart. On the one hand, we want to follow God. I know you do purely to know him, deeply to love him, deeply to submit to him. And yet there's this other little part of our heart that still remains that says, Jesus, get your grubby little hands off me. It's there. I feel that battle. I face that battle. I know you face that battle. And you know what? There's comfort in knowing the Apostle Paul even faced that battle. He said in Romans 7, listen to this tension. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging against war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And he went on to just go like, ah, this wretched body, who's going to deliver me? If that's the case then, a pure-hearted person, that we still have this waging battle, a pure-hearted person hasn't just arrived with the perfect product of, a, of perfect holiness and obedience, but a pure heart realizes that there's idols in there still have to be dealt with. And that these idols won't deliver us and we have to ditch them, destroy them, dethrone them, however you want to say it. It's the process of growing as a Christian in purity heart, purity of heart. This is a pure heart. You look at all your striving and you admit your self-saving efforts and you turn to Jesus again and you listen again to his words. His words of forgiveness, his words of mercy, his words of grace, his words of comfort in the gospel. So how do you know if you have one? A pure heart. Well, first, here's a, I want to give a couple practical ways. Here's the first. Remember, uh, our heart is the product of intellect, emotions, and will. All of those things. All of those. So take a look at your Christianity. Is it a balanced blend of all three? Emotions, intellect, and will. Or maybe for you, is it just intellect? I love studying deep thoughts of God. I love theology. I love thinking about God. But it doesn't give me real change or joy. Maybe for you, it's the will. My Christianity is about doing right, keeping the rules. But your mind and your emotions aren't engaged. And maybe not truly growing and changing from the inside out. Maybe for you, it's the emotional side of Christianity that's out of whack. I just feel so good to be with Jesus. I love it. I love to raise my hands and worship and sing. And yet, your actions and your choices don't line up with his word. Take a look at your Christianity. Is it balanced in heart, emotions, intellect, will? That's one way. Test yourself. Probe your heart. Think about your heart. A purified heart is, 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 is somewhat balanced, is growing and changing in, in emotions, will, and intellect, all of those. Maybe for you the test is, am I just trying to 
redeem myself, like Lori Laughlin said. Be a nice person. Maybe you're a, a nice person, but are you a new person? Like C.S. Lewis said, that new creature, not just a horse, a winged animal. This would be the more likely one for a bunch of us that go to church. This would be more likely our area to test ourselves. A lot of religious people think Pharisees, I mean, a lot of religious people don't have a pure heart because it's all about the externals and how people perceive you. I, I was listening to another pastor this week. He had this great nice versus new list, and I kind of took some of his and added some of my own. Listen to the difference between nice and new. Nice people go to church. New people go to worship. Nice people are easily hurt and offended. New people aren't easily offended. They have an internal ballast and security. They're the person who knows I am what I am because of God's grace. It's almost funny to them, hilarious to them. I couldn't have done this. I couldn't have gotten through that unless I was a renewed person with the Spirit of God dwelling in me. This isn't me. This is God working in and through me, willing through me. Nice people look good on the outside. New people actually grow and change from the inside out. Nice people look at the truth and say, yes, we've got the truth, and they don't. New people find themselves enraptured and taken with the truth and want to take it in and place themselves under it and say, how can I be transformed by this? Nice people don't know what to do with failure. New people know that there's hope and change and repentance. Nice people say, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. New people look and say, we are renewed and they're the not yet renewed. Nice people find their primary identity and their niceness or the stuff of earth, their political party, their family name, their reputation. New people find their primary identity in citizenship in God's kingdom and value that above all else. Nice people are okay with mediocre niceness. New people have amazing expectations for their heart, their family, their life, their community, their town, because they know it's from the inside out, and it's a power that's not of their own that does it. Nice, new. Nice or new. And what's the result then for those who are renewed by God? As you look at your life, as we look at this beatitude, as I hope today you recommit and renew and look at pursuing God by examining your heart, testing your heart, destroying your idols, do you know what the final result is? Seeing God. Seeing God, our final point, which will be quick to wrap up, seeing God is what you were made for. And when you do, it will finally make sense of your entire life. So much in life that's confusing. So much you think of the pain and suffering part of life as Christians. That's our hardest thing to answer. That's our hardest thing to come up with an answer for. But I have to believe that when we see God, it will make sense of every single thing you've ever been through. Greatest pain, greatest tragedy, greatest suffering. It will make sense of it all. The verse says this, you will see God. The pure in heart will see God. Do you know that that's what you were made for? Think back to the garden. And they walked with him. They saw him. You were made for that. Every human on earth was actually made for that. To see the God of the Bible now. This God. It's the very purpose of your existence. To be with God without veils, without filters, without masks. See him. 
And it's been the hope of his people since the beginning. It's a blessing I say to my own kids, and we've said it here. Listen to this one from Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you, be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance, it's his face again upon you, to give you peace. Well, it's really hard to describe what that's going to be like. That's really hard for us as humans, finite in our bodies, what that's going to be like. We know a little of it now. You know a little of it right now. I was reading Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with one of my daughters this week. And I was reading through the, the Pevensies. It's the four kids. And their interaction with the first time they heard when they were in Narnia and heard about the name Aslan, you know, the lion. It's kind of the Christ figure in the book. It's before they even met him. Here, here's how it impacted them. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt the sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and you realize it's the beginning of the holidays, the beginning of, of summer. We have this, kind of like those children, this otherworldly mixture when we hear the name of God and desire to see him, a mixture of fear and delight. We want to know him and be close to him, and yet we know to see God apart from Christ would be absolutely terrifying. You know that in your heart. And the kids go on and they ask Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. They go on and ask them, Oh, he's a lion? I thought he was a man. Well, is he quite safe then? A lion, think, right? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're braver than most elf else or just silly. Well, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's good. He's the king, I tell you. On the one hand, you and I, we can see God now in this world. We see his beauty in nature, in God moving through history. And Christians, you know his presence by his spirit and we experience his provision his answering prayers and the transformation you see him doing inside of us and yet we still don't see him you know the reason we hate wearing masks one is the obvious the, the fog our glasses they're annoying but part of the reason is that it covers half our face i mean think about that our faces are the primary medium god gave us to eat with sing with taste with speak with communicate with How, what's it like to talk with somebody when you see their eyes I mean, I'm at the cashier line going I hope she can see my smile wrinkles you know <laughs> it's horrible isn't it well in some ways we see God in some ways masked right now not quite as we will not quite as we will but the day when you see him one commentator said this the most rapturous delights you've ever had the beauty of a landscape or the pleasure of food or the fulfillment of a loving embrace, they're like dewdrops compared to the bottomless ocean of joy that it'll be to see God face to face. 
no, 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 he isn't safe. But he's good. He's good. And when we see him, if you are in Christ, oh, it will be so good. But what do you do? What do you do if you're here in the here and now and say, well, I, I want to be more pure. I want to have this pure heart. I want to know him better. I want to see him more now. What do I do? You look to where we can see God most clearly now. And do you know where that is? It's in the face of Jesus Christ. St. Corinthians said this, For God, who said that light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus to the degree that you lack purity of heart. You have not seen God in the gospel enough. You have not seen God in the face of Jesus Christ enough. And so look to Jesus if you want that pure heart. Look to God in flesh and live that, who, who, who live that undivided life with that pure heart undivided, solely devoted to his Father and to save you. He had a one-track mission, one-track goal, one-track pure heart set on saving you. Look at his face. Look at him in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, it's daunting to think of the pure heart that we need when our hearts can be so divided, running after all kinds of different things. We see that in our frustrations. We see that in our responses of anger. We see that in our moments of fear, Lord Jesus. But let that not make us fret. Let us see those as opportunities to see our idols, to see the things we're placing above you, good things. All the, most of the time, good things our idols are. But we turn them into God things. So let us see them. Give us that pure heart. Work out the wrinkles and the folds and the divides in our heart today and unite us around pursuing you, Jesus, the purity of your good news. Let us know that change is possible as new people. Let us transform from nice to new, from the inside out. Not just a new kind of horse, but a winged creature. And let us all hope and wait for that day when we see you face to face. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.